Hi, and welcome to Forgotten Film Club. We're your hosts, Sarah, Hallie, and John. Merry Christmas, Forgotten Film Club fans. Today, we're talking about Serendipity, starring Kate Beckinsale and John Cusack. Oh my God, Sarah. What? That mo- Serendipity. Well, I have here in honor of this movie, a frozen hot chocolate. I don't know if it's because I went to a local store and then froze some hot chocolate instead of hauling myself to the Upper East Side, but I don't get the appeal. Like, I think I'd like this better as a hot chocolate. What is the added value of freezing it? Well, what, I've never had a frozen hot chocolate. Does it taste like a slushy? It's like not even a good, it's not even a good frosty is kind of the vibe. Oh, are you kidding? It's like chocolate ice. I even whisked it to, you know. To, to get it, it moving. Yeah, but it feels like it's just like chocolate ice. Is that what people like? <laughs> I don't know. I don't like it. Can I reheat it? <laughs> I've been to Serendipity. I It made me forget. I forgot that even existed in New York. And then I was like, oh, yeah. It's also the name of that chocolate place. That's why they're there. If you're listening and you understand the appeal of frozen hot chocolate, please contact us at forgottenfilmclub.com and explain it to me. Yeah, I mean, that's there's a whole lot of questions that we need answered about frozen hot chocolate and probably other gastronomical things we'll run into on this show. I've never made one, but I used to have them when they sold them at Dunkin' Donuts. Were they good? Yeah, describe it for us, please. I mean, it got the job done. Describe the texture of it. It wasn't thick or anything like that. It, it was just pretty much just like thin. It was pretty, I feel like the viscosity was pretty thin. It's like shaved ice. But with chocolate. Kind of, yeah. I don't get it. Do you guys like egg creams? No. I've never had one. I've had one and it made me want to vomit. It feels like the shaved shaved ice chocolate thing makes me feel egg cream vibes. Yeah, we went to... We went to like a 1950s nostalgia night a couple years ago and they had like a real egg cream person there. Um, A real egg cream yeah, and it's like, I, why? Like, why? I, I, I it, seltzer and, and chocolate milk. Like, why was this ever a thing? Well, it now just, that I've ruined a perfectly good hot chocolate, it was a good hot chocolate. It was a good hot chocolate. I murdered milk. it. Should we talk about this movie? Oh my gosh, yes. I've, I, have, I have so many, so many thoughts about this movie. <laughs> Our romantic leads, Jonathan and Sarah, Meet while being very polite Christmas shoppers. They're both trying to pick up the same pair of gloves at Bloomingdale's, and both are very deferential about who gets them. Sparks fly. They then decamp to Serendipity, which we're supposed to believe New Yorker Jonathan has never heard of, and Sarah reveals that she first visited the restaurant known for its frozen hot chocolate because the word Serendipity describes her whole worldview. She believes that fate sends little signals, and the correct interpretation of those signs is what determines our happiness. Unfortunately, both Sarah and Jonathan have significant others. This doesn't stop Jonathan from asking for her phone number, but she won't even tell him her name. She says if they're meant to be, fate will force their paths to cross again. As he's about to get on the subway, Jonathan realizes he's forgotten his scarf. Turns out, Sarah forgot the shopping bag with the gloves in it. So they both returned to serendipity at the same time. Wow, fate acts fast. So then these two cheaters go on an ice skating date. They're asking each other get to know you questions when Sarah completely wipes out on the ice. While bandaging her arm, 
Jonathan tells her that her freckles remind him of the constellation Cassiopeia. Once upon a time, an Australian man told me the freckles in my arm look like the Southern Cross. So now I know where he got that line. At least he didn't trace the constellation with a pen like Jonathan does. At last, with a really shitty temp tat, Sarah is smitten. Finally, she agrees to give Jonathan her number. But when the wind from a passing truck sweeps the number away, she refuses to rewrite it or even tell this man her name. She decides that Jonathan should write his name and phone number on a $5 bill. She then immediately spends this $5 at a newsstand, trusting that fate will return it to her if they are meant to be. When Jonathan points out that it isn't fair for her to be able to call him and not the other way around, she says she's going to write her name and her phone number in Love in the Time of Cholera, because of course it's Love in the Time of Cholera. She promises to sell the book the next day and encourages Jonathan to check every used bookstore from here to eternity for the book. Why is every woman in a rom-com low-key crazy? I hate this. Can we gender reverse this at least one time? Can anyone even name a manic pixie dream boy other than Jack Dawson? Alas, it seems that they kind of want to fuck. So Sarah devises another plan to test fate. They each get into an elevator at the Waldorf Astoria. She tells him her name as the doors are about to close. She says that they each pick the same floor. They are destined to be together. Seems like somebody never taught Sarah the rules of probability, and that is a truly unfortunate gap in her education. They do, in fact, pick the same floor, but unfortunately, a kid gets down on a lower floor and presses the buttons for all the floors. However, having to stop at each floor between 14 and 23 does at least give Jonathan a chance to check each of those floors. Sadly, Sarah doesn't wait long enough, and they narrowly miss each other. Well, this is a fun 17 and a half minutes, but there are a ton of hot and wonderful people in New York and you shouldn't have to work this hard to get laid. Unfortunately, it looks like we're in for another 73 minutes of this. I'm not much on reading signs, but if I were to guess at what message fate was trying to send me, I would guess that fate wants this to be the most tedious 73 minutes of my life. And the introduction of Jeremy Piven in the next scene would seem to indicate that I have read this sign correctly. It's now a few years later. Jonathan is getting married to Natasha from Sex and the City, and they're all celebrating at the Waldorf. Honestly, this should be the end of the movie. Good job, Jonathan. You're marrying a sexy, kind woman. But no, we have 69 more minutes to fill. So of course, Jonathan checks the inside of love in the time of cholera when he passes a used bookseller on the street. It's not the right one. Then we cut to Sarah, who it turns out is a counselor, and she's in a therapy session encouraging her client to not believe in soulmates and to take charge of his own destiny. This is very, very weirdly directive, but I do like her better now. She lives in San Francisco and commutes on a ferry to the sounds of Annie Lennox. When she gets home, her boyfriend Aiden from Sex and the City proposes to her. Okay, I do know his name, but out of deference to Natasha, I will be referring to him as Aiden henceforth. Honestly, both of these people are thriving in their separate worlds. I don't need to see them together. The ring doesn't fit, but nude chill Sarah is like, cool, we'll just get it resized. Jonathan, however, has become less chill with time. He arrives to the hairdresser to find he's been assigned a new person named Sarah. His eyes get big. He flees the salon. A biker next to him in traffic sings Sarah's smile. Dude, I can tell you from experience, it is literally the most common name in the world. He heads to the New York Times to confer with his BFF, Jeremy Piven, who tells him he's out of his damn mind. After a long day of searching through books, Jonathan comes home and encounters the gloves, still in their bag from Bloomingdale's, 
after several years. Anyway, inside, he finds the receipt with Sarah's Bloomingdale's account number printed on it. Aiden turns out to be a new age flautist named Lars, and he is extra. Wow, John Corbett was on a roll in the early aughts. This, Sex in the City, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, amazing work, John, amazing. Okay, I'll start calling him Lars now. And I'll start calling Natasha Hallie because that is her name in this movie. The characters in this movie are named Sarah, Hallie, and John. Is this serendipity? Molly Shannon and Eugene Levy are here too, by the way. At Bloomingdale's, Jonathan begs Eugene Levy to look up the Bloomingdale's account number on the receipt. After forcing Jonathan to buy $700 worth of clothing, Eugene reveals that the account is no longer active. Back in San Francisco, Sarah checks a $5 bill for Jonathan's number. It isn't there, but we do get to see Lars's new Viking-themed music video, and Sarah decides to take a trip to New York with Molly Shannon. Meanwhile in New York, Jonathan, Jeremy Piven, and Eugene Levy are at a warehouse in Queens where they finally find Sarah's account record, but the last name is smeared off on the carbon paper. With only a first name and an old-ass address, Jonathan continues his search. After landing in New York, Molly Shannon realizes that Sarah has ulterior motives for this trip. And Sarah is all like, I can't stop thinking about this mystery man, even though I am about to get married. Was only you the source material for this movie? Molly Shannon gets on board with this whacked out plan, and we head to what is apparently the only hotel in New York, the Waldorf. After very lightly strong-arming the young man at the leasing office of Sarah's old building, Jonathan and Jeremy Piven learn the tenant's name was Sebastian Mignon. This man now lives in Brooklyn. After running into a man dressed as a giant golf ball on a tee, Sarah decides that it's a sign and heads to the range he was promoting. Little does she know that she accidentally touched gum that Jonathan had stuck behind the back of a bench. Romantic. In Brooklyn, Jonathan and Jeremy Piven learn that Sebastian and Sarah are no longer in touch and met through a roommate matching service right next to Serendipity. At Serendipity, Sarah buys Molly Shannon a piece of cake for her birthday. They leave without anyone having touched that beautiful cake. And Molly takes $5 as change. It's the $5 bill. They get into a cab just as Jonathan and Jeremy Piven arrive to find the roommate matching service is now a bridal boutique. Jonathan takes this as a sign that he should be marrying the woman he's already engaged to. And Jonathan decides to head to his wedding rehearsal instead of hunting down any more information about Sarah. Hallie arrives at the Waldorf before Jonathan and bumps into Sarah and Molly Shannon. It turns out Molly Shannon was her RA in college. She invites them both to the wedding rehearsal, which like, wow, I mean, she was that close with her RA. Sarah declines the invite and heads upstairs to call Lars, who she finds camped out in the hallway waiting for her. At the rehearsal, neither Hallie nor Jonathan seems very excited. At the end of the rehearsal, Hallie invites Molly Shannon to the wedding and tells her to bring her friend. When she and Jonathan are alone, Hallie cries and says he is being really distant and freaking her out. If fate is real, then fate is a bitch because Hallie is super nice and does not deserve any of this. Then she gives Jonathan a first edition book as his groom's gift. She bought him love in the time of cholera because he picks it up in every goddamn used bookstore and yet does not own a copy. Sarah Thomas's phone number is inside. I'm Team Hallie. I want to watch the Hallie movie where she reverses her fate and I'm so done with these other fools. Jonathan and Jeremy Piven fly to San Francisco with the intention of knocking on Sarah's door unannounced. There they glimpse Sarah's house sitter who looks remarkably like her. 
through a window, having passionate sex with some dude. Sarah decides not to attend a stranger's wedding, so she heads back to San Francisco while Molly Shannon prepares for the wedding. We learn from a quick phone chat on the tarmac that Sarah and Lars have broken up. She's also somehow managed to switch her wallet with Molly Shannon. While purchasing a headset from the flight attendant, she at long last discovers the $5 bill. Sarah gets Jonathan's address only to learn when she arrives that he's getting married at the Waldorf. When she gets there, she finds the wedding has been called off. Sarah sobs with joy. These people are such trash. Okay, I digress. Wouldn't this be a bummer if this was like a really drawn out example of one of those first dates? It's great. And the second date that just totally falls flat. And these people have literally ruined relationships over a good first date. At the skating rink where they had their date, Jonathan finds Sarah's coat. She left it on a bench days earlier, and absolutely no one in New York City needed a coat, so it was still there waiting for him to find. Jonathan then sits in the middle of the rink like an absolute dick, so everyone just has to work around him. But given how self-centered he's been this whole time, I'm not shocked. It begins to snow. Now alone at the rink, Jonathan stares up at the heavens as a black glove floats down like a totem. Standing at a remarkably far distance, wow, she's got a good underhand throw. Sarah waves at him from the edge of the rink. And a flash forward, we learn, oh my God, this is the stupidest movie. <laughs> this has been the best, best <laughs> recap ever. In a flash forward, we learn that they have gotten married and they celebrate the anniversary of the meeting at the Glove Rack in Bloomingdale's. Oh, can you imagine if you just needed to run into a store and pick up some gloves and these douches were standing there drinking champagne? The end. you know what it actually this has been my favorite recap on so many levels but one of the first ones actually is that what you'd think it's i think i needed this movie read back to me (laughs) i think i needed it read back to me because there were a couple moments when it kind of was having a little bit of a choke hold on like my shoulder and I'm sort of like, what is this? And I think I was kind of like having a moment a couple times in the movie, but then getting it read back, I'm like, oh yeah. It makes you feel like a little insane. Watch it makes me feel a little crazy. I kept having to remind myself, like, okay, okay, these aren't these aren't real people. These are cartoon characters. They're very like the the reality in this, it's so confusing because it looks like our world. But no one behaves like it's in our world. I mean, it is, I'm so, I don't even know where to start. Well, the I'm, frozen hot chocolate got meltier, so I just want to provide a quick update that I like it better now. Okay, good. Um, It, okay, hold on. Let me, so you got, start, and I'm going to get this review. Hold on. Oh, where do we start? Well, first of all, whenever you're putting Jeremy Piven in your movie, it's a problem. Yeah, whenever you have Harvey Weinstein producing your movie, it's a problem. There's definitely some Harvey Weinstein stuff in here. The ending that you made fun of, that we made, that you made fun of so much of the um, champagne in front of the glove rack, that was completely his idea. Director Peter Chelsom, um, he... Like, it it was a clean 88 uh, 88 minutes for his movie, and it it ended with them kissing. And then Harvey Weinstein is like, wait, we need a more powerful ending that also has Eugene Levy because the test audience has really liked Eugene Levy. So we need to have him come back. 
And so they, everybody got together for the reshoots. Nobody wanted to be there. Everybody thought it was stupid. And yeah, that's the end of the movie. You know what? That actually doesn't surprise me because it felt like that a little bit. You felt like the end of the movie was in the ring. And I predicted the entire ending. It's like, I bet you that he's going to pop up. Eugene Levy is going to pop up any second and saying, sorry, there's no drinking in here. And I was right. I was right. I predicted. I mean, it was I, I was clairvoyant. I had to literally rewind when she's on the phone before takeoff in New York and says, you know, how did he handle it? How did he, how did Lars handle the breakup? Oh, we handled it okay. I'm like, was there a scene that I missed where she broke up with him? Well, they needed another glove scene. They, yes. they, don't, they don't they don't have time to break up with Aiden. There were movies longer than 90 minutes in 2001. We exactly. could have had another five minutes to see we that. We could have had five more minutes where we just <laughs> let that poor man off the hook. So was the casting on purpose between um, between Bridget Mo- Moynihan and John Corbet? Because season three of Sex and the City, where Carrie cheats on Aiden um, with Big, who is cheating on Natasha... Um, is in season three and that's and that takes place in the year 2000 when this was when this was filmed i think you're giving this way too much credit i feel like they were just around i bet they were both in new york and their agents sent them this script (laughs) (laughs) and everybody else passed they were like what the fuck is this also what are you doing john cusack you just did high fidelity and you're like sign me up for serendipity really this was actually this was people were trying to get on we're trying to get in on this um, what? <laughs> yeah, it was Jennifer um Jennifer Aniston is the only person that turned it down. She's a wise woman. Okay. But she she only turned it down because at the po- at that time she was trying to do things like the good girl and she said, "Well, I'm doing like a romantic comedy a week." Um but yeah, Carl Gugino was in the running. She was like in the final screen testing and then Kate Beckinsale came in with an American accent and they cast and they cast her instead of if she could do her regular British accent. Okay, can I just read you a couple moments from this review that are just so... I feel like he was drinking when he wrote this. I feel like he had to write this review, and he was angry. He had a deadline coming up. Are you ready? This is from Roger Ebert on October 5th, 2001. John is played by John Cusack in what is either a bad career move or temporary insanity. And then he goes on to talk about other things, but the best thing is what he says at the end. By the time these two people finally get together, if they do, I don't want to give anything away. I was thinking of new tests. What if she put a personal ad in the paper and he has to guess which paper? How about dedicating a song to her and trusting her to be listening to the radio at the same moment in the same city? What about throwing a dart at a spinning world globe? I hope this movie never has a sequel because John and Sarah are destined to become the most boring married couple in history. For years to come, people at parties will be whispering, see that couple over there? The Traegers, John and Sarah. Whatever you do, don't ask them how they met. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and with Roger Ebert, I I find that a lot of his reviews haven't aged so well. Like, not for like any like misogynistic or racist reasons or anything like that, but just like, like I, I, like, I don't know. I feel like he disliked a lot of movies that are now considered classics, but that was, that was actually really, that was actually very witty of him. What's one that he did, um, hated that was now considered a classic? I'm curious. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot. I just listened to like a screen drafts episode where they did um, two thumbs down. Uh, um, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, 
he seemed to be in a surly mood when he wrote that, which made me giggle. Because I, I just had to know. I was like, I really want to know what the reviews were for this thing. But I'm going to tell you, I think this was peak John Cusack, looks-wise. <laughs> That's all we can give it. Oh, yeah. I can give it more than that. But I really, I can I could find some fun things mm-hmm. to talk about with this. Because I did find some parts fun. But that yeah. actually, he was so good-looking in this movie. He was actually believable with Kate Beckinsale. But um, yeah, John Cusack, it's, I don't know what happened to him in this de- in this decade. Um, because at the beginning of the decade, he was, yeah, completely believable as a, as a male romantic lead against people totally. like, 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 yeah, Kate Beckinsale and Diane Lane. And then suddenly, like, just something happened. Like, I don't know. Did he make another rom-com after this? Because, like, I don't remember Miss him Love in Dogs? one. Oh, oh, I forgot yeah. about that. Must love, Do- Must love Dogs was after this, wasn't it? I didn't see that. Is that another Forgotten Film Club pick? Well, what about America's Sweethearts? America's was that before America's this or was America's that after? After. And Julia Ro- oh, actually, wait. America's Sweethearts might have been 2000. I, let me, oh. This is why we have Google. Yeah. I'm going to guess 2002. 2001. It's 2001. Oh, same year. Same year. Um, so fun fact, not so fun fact about this movie um, that I've read was uh, it was obviously released right after 9-11. October 5th. And October 5th. And they, or at least that's when the review came out. I don't know if that's the exact release date, but it was slated for right after that. And uh, John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale were like, we don't want to be promoting this. I feel like that's a little inappropriate to be promoting this. Um, and the agents got screamed at by Harvey Weinstein and they had to do it. So Kate Beckinsale shows up at the premiere with a really beautiful, like all white pants suit on. And she is like, you know, I, I felt like we had to be a little bit, not somber, but a little like reserved in this whole thing. Cause it was like fucking crazy. We were even promoting it with what was happening in the world. And Harvey Weinstein got so angry, but she didn't know he was angry. He, they, I guess they had kids the same age. So he was like, Hey, do you want to come over to my house um, and have a play date with the kids? And, bring your nanny and she felt like she couldn't say no so she this is her interview i watched with her telling the story she goes in the kids go off with the nannies and he lays into her for wearing a pantsuit to the premiere yeah that tracks yeah that tracks i know that kate beckinsale was one of the people that came out against him um but yeah, that's yeah. Harvey Weinstein's fingerprints, I feel like, are are all over this thing. Um, he was also the one that. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I personally, I don't know how I feel about this decision either, but um, he was extremely adamant that the Twin Towers had to be digitally removed from the sky. Everybody did that, though. Like everybody did that yeah. at that time. I feel like it was. I mean, looking back, I feel like it was an overcorrection. But the director says that he didn't want to do that because he said that it's. You know, this is supposed to be like a, a this is supposed to be like a love letter to a love letter to New York City. Yeah, to falling in love in New York. And I'm kind of wondering if this just reminded every like if keeping the Twin Towers in, I like that the absence of them might have actually reminded people more. I like, don't I'm, think so. I, I mean, I didn't. Them. Yeah, I didn't live here at the time, but I no. I remember. I mean, this that's less than a month after, and. 
I remember there was all that stuff, like songs printed in the newspaper that were considered like impolite or hurtful to play on the radio. And I, I do think it's almost like COVID where like everybody knows it's happened. It's so pervasive. You don't want to see it in a TV show. And I can't, I get the point. Everybody edited the towers out, like Sex in the City removed it, like multiple movies removed yeah. them. I think it was so um, telling of what we know now, of course, you know, and of course other women have stories 86 times worse. I'm, you know, I'm not conflating that yeah. story with other women and neither was she. It was just a, <laughs> I mean, read the room, dude. Yeah, you sunk money into it, but man, like, yeah, it shows you his, his personality, like that level of arrogance and narcissism knows truly no limit. And this movie wasn't like a box office bomb or anything like that. It made, I mean, I think it made like three times its budget with like against 28 million. It made 77.5 million. Um, but it wasn't the biggest success as they wanted it to be. And, you know, it was the year of Harry Potter as well. Roger Ebert actually, before his, you know, savage remarks, he he before his remarks he talks about how it almost reads as a satire of um sleepless in seattle a great movie mm-hmm. fabulous movie and he even like links his review to that movie and he that gives it a great review but it almost is kind of like that where like it i think it actually has okay bones because it, it kind of portrays its own premise over and over again yep totally because it's like okay destiny destiny is going to bring these people together but they keep on they were trying to have it both ways, it seems like. I don't know if that was the point of the story that like these two people kept on trying to fuck around with destiny and trying right. to like and trying to force destiny. And then, but like destiny was also like a real thing that magically brought them together. Exactly. That was so was so making me so irate watching it, being like, you are asking the world far too much. I just thought this was the weirdest foreplay I've ever seen. And I don't want to kink shame, oh. but I was just like girl like he's right there and you're clearly into him why are you making up weird shit about the floor like you're in a hotel get a room were they both together with other people yes they're also assholes lest we forget yeah lest we forget this was completely like off base yeah no i mean they i mean they went out on a date with each other they (laughs) did yeah like they were on a date yeah Okay, let's get back to the good bones of this because you're right, Hallie, there are some good bones there. And if we were to restructure, the vibes are going to be, oh, the photography, beautiful. I'm all about that. I love that. Christmas in New York was alive and well. The Christmas in the early 2000s was alive and well, which to me is a very specific brand of Christmas. Yes, and it's it it really did feel like a magical place that you actually want to live in. Correct. Um, and it, it had that beautiful glow to it, which I love. It felt lighter to, I mean, coming back to the 9-11 of it all, I, I know this movie is a fantasy and like really like eating cotton candy, but I, I just seeing some of the street scenes, I was kind of like, man, remember in like 2000 when you could just kind of like wander around and not have that like additional level of anxiety that everybody's been carrying around for like 20 years. Yeah, like it's, I don't know if, because my only exposure to New York City before, I mean, I, I visited in what, like in 2002, so I've never, ever, ever been to a um, a pre-9-11 New York City. So I don't know if this was just in the movies, but like I was just, I was telling, I was telling my husband during the movie, like every, like all the New Yorkers in this just kind of seem like not very guarded. 
um, kind of quirky. I guess, and I, I'm just wondering, like, is it actually like a product of the movie? Or, like, just you know, this move, this city through movies, or is it, or has there actually been like a cultural shift within the city in the last 24 mm. years? I do think a lot of it is the movie of it all, but I don't even mean like what in New think, York Sarah? City. I just think like I feel like in general, like there was so much. I we even talked about this on our our mini episode a little bit, like there was this positivity of the nineties. There was a ton of positivity coming up to the millennium. Like people were excited about recycling. I know that's so basic, but like once upon a time, people used to really like do that and get jazzed up and like, think you could change the world. And we're shrinking the hole in the ozone layer and we're getting rid of that week. Yeah. Like we want to get rid of racism. Like we really do. And like, we're imperfect, but we're trying, you know, it really felt like there was, um, more, hope and joie de vie and now everyone's paranoid and anxious and the fact that we were so gung-ho for the future like we were excited about the future yes like you know it's like 2000s makeup it's like there was so much so there was so much silver makeup there was so much space age shit that was coming that was coming that was coming in like we were so excited in 1999, people were really jazzed about 2000. And then in 2000, people were like, wait, 2001 is actually the millennium. Now we're so excited about the new millennium. And then it just like all became, you know, then you weren't excited about shit anymore because you had like anticipatory anxiety. Didn't people also think though, on the other side of that coin, that like computers were going to explode the minute 2000 dropped? I remember that. Like, I totally remember my mom bought like spam to put in the cabinet because we thought all the computers would crash and you couldn't like buy gas or whatever. There was a two thousand um, beanie baby. They had a special limited edition beanie baby. It was a. It was just a simpler time. Um, yeah. I'm glad they make a comment in like you know the beginning of the second act of the movie about John Cusack's hair because I was like, I just need him to cut the back of it for a hot second. I was watching the whole opening skating thing and I was just like, all I need, I'm into this, I'm attracted, I'm here for the movie. I need him to cut the back of his hair. It looked like a mistake because it was like they were trying to give him some weird mullet thing to like say that he was younger and a little more a documentary filmmaker. Okay, so, all right, just once again, the good bones. I'm okay, I am okay with like, this getting to know you situation as long as it's not like a full-on date or if there's like a hint of like if there's a hint of like we're on the rocks and I'm like exiting I know it's still it's not good but I need something redeemable right or maybe they're not in relationships why are they in relationships okay so they're both single they're on a cute little date they're playing with fate as like a flirtation I'm okay with that as soon as we cross the line and say like I'm gonna spend this five dollar bill immediately you can't know my name or have my phone number I'm like I don't want any part of this I don't want anything to do with this it needed to be the beginning of it it needed to be lightning like it needed to be earth shattering like their chemistry together and it should have been like it like the serendipity of it all um to really mess around with their heads like they needed to have things in common like really weird things in common maybe even like maybe even know like a common person like something something that really kind of said to them like this is like this could be that this could be meant um this could be meant to be yeah and I feel like the date that we had was like kind of like cutesy but it was lackluster and 
Yeah. And also like, yeah, yeah. like you said, like Sarah, the artifact of like, why do they have to be in relationships? Like maybe it could have been something more along the lines of, well, like maybe one of them was going, was going to, was moving away soon. Um, you know, maybe it's, you like know, they were, maybe they were both, uh, maybe they were in relationships that were very still like, you know, still new, or they're just kind of dating around still with nothing too serious, just yep. something. I also wouldn't have faulted them. I would, I didn't fault them for being in relationships. I didn't like the serendipity date with them being in relationships, but I was willing to forgive it because it was like, okay, you did something sweet. You know, I'll, okay, let's get a hot chocolate. It was once they then went to the skating thing. Yeah. Yes. Where I was like, oh no. I was like, now this is a date. Now I this is a date. Exactly. I did not consider the serendipity part of it to be a date. Like, I, I see twice. that in hindsight, but at the point in time where they're yeah. like, let's get a hot chocolate. I don't really feel like we've crossed lines when we're no, ice skating. We cross the line at the ice skating. Yes. That was sort of the, what? This is a date. Yeah, because she only bought, she only brought him to the serendipity place to pay him back for the hot chocolate. Yeah, she was back paying him back. back. Yeah. Yeah. Which was fine. And like, okay, it was okay. And then he breaks the news and he is also dating somebody. And she's like, oh, bummer. Da, 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 da. And then, then it goes off the rails. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, okay. So if we wind it back, I, I don't think we need significant others, but whether they're around or not, if we get into John's point, some really like eerie connections or some deeper connection at the serendipity date, then you can at least be questioning whether or not these people should be together. It's not just kind of like, let's follow our bliss. Exactly. I think, I think so. I think and I think we didn't need as many um, missteps with the losing the number, putting the number here, taking the money. Da, da, da. I, I think that the I think that like whatever demon um, is active in the Final Destination movies also moonlights as the serendipity demon that's in this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally see that. I Do didn't we... want Jeremy Piven in the movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Do we even really need the best friend characters? I don't feel like they're no. doing anything. I but... think it, I I don't think that was the fault of the best friend characters. I yeah. wanted so much more for Molly Shannon because she's Molly Shannon. Why oh. did we get so much Jeremy Piven and so little Molly Shannon? Exactly. Because it, it, it was a John Cusack of it that brought in Jeremy Piven because they were in a few movies together. They were best friends when they were kids. Oh, but we're, okay. we're going to rewrite it. And so I need less, less of that character, Jeremy Piven aside, yeah. more of Molly Shannon. Here's, here's the thing that no one's brought up yet that I am very much going to sing for years now about this movie. If anyone ever asks me about this movie, Hallie was amazing mm -hmm. and Lars was not. So if you're going to play this, we both have to be, They it needed to be both people were equally amazing. Why would he leave Hallie for this woman who is not going to give him her name? We're making fun of Lars. That's what didn't track for me was I was sort of like, we're not making fun of Hallie. We're showing that Hallie is wonderful. We're not showing that Lars is wonderful. If Hallie sucked, the movie would have been more enjoyable because I spent I so much time feeling bad for her. Well, it's sort of like you've got mail, right? They have their significant mm -hmm. others kind of fucking annoying. Mm -hmm. The Greg Kinnear and the Parker Posey are annoying. Yes. Yeah, because then you're and kind so, of, you want that relationship to end. Exactly. I, I wanted to hang out with Hallie. I keep saying it because I like saying my own name, but. Hallie's I like, great. 
she was the one who I was like, oh, that woman sounds interesting. Yeah. Nothing's wrong with her. Can we rewrite? Okay, let's scrap. Let's scrap the reimagining in the traditional sense. I want to, let's redo the movie from Hallie's perspective where this like fucking insane man is like running around on her and like emotionally cheating on her for years by yeah. looking for love in the time of cholera at the fucking bookstore. And then can we have, can it be like a revenge tale? A revenge tale or like what if we took it out of the, yeah, took it out, uh, out of the romantic comedy genre and why don't we make this like a black comedy? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. it'd be great. And, and I think that we should do, so during this entire movie, I was thinking about something called, something from social psychology called the frequency illusion or the Bader-Meinhof phenomena, where it, it, it usually happens that if you like learn um, a word for the first time, do you then see it like everywhere or fader <laughs> mine off instead of serendipity i love it yeah. buy me a ticket yeah or it's like um if you you know buy a red car you you then see a bunch of red cars every, everywhere like everyone has a red car now yeah um with him i'm wondering like instead of fate and serendipity actually being a real thing how about we just have this character fully believe in it and fuck up his life Oh, yeah, because I feel like that actually is what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? I totally. I, I was watching it being like so terrified for him because I was like, you realize yeah. you have a really lovely life. Yeah. Like, I just wanted to I just wanted this to be like a black comedy about like a character study of, of these characters, of, of both of these people. And yeah, it's like he he makes a huge decision because he hears the word in the name Sarah all of a sudden because his attention has narrowed because of his emotions. Um, like I, I was, like I was telling Jerry, like it, it just seems like these two characters, they what's going on right now is that they have Bader mine off and they're seeing all these signs where there's no signs, but there's, there actually is no destiny. Um, their attention is narrowing because their emotion, they're, they're subconsciously trying to sabotage their relationships that they're in. Yeah. And yeah, like that seems more realistic than like them holding the torch for um for Bloomingdale's person. Like I totally I feel like <laughs> I could talk about this movie in therapy. Like that's how I'm feeling about this movie. I feel like I because again, it like had a <laughs> lion a hold on my shoulder where I was like, this isn't even the right place for the chokehold to be. What's happening? <laughs> oh my god, now the movie traumatized Hallie. It traumatized me because I'm like oh my God, what we really just watched was someone imagine if like the bartender you gave your number to, you were in a fabulous relationship and engaged and the day before, three days before your wedding, you go, remember that bartender I gave my number to 15 years ago? Or it wasn't that long. What, what are we saying? It's like three years. Four, three, week? four. I don't know. Yeah. 1990, so 1994. And 2001, so like six or seven years. Oh, it's that, it's that long. Mm -hmm. Wow, her hair was not correct for 1994. I'm just going to leave that. It was a little crimped, but not crimped enough. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't. She yeah. looked perfectly on point, though, for 2001. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she had the long leather jacket in one scene, the midriff shirts. She was set. Yeah, well, the flat iron hair. Yeah, the very, the very flat-ironed hair. Yeah. Why didn't we give her bangs if it was 1994? That's my question. 
Well, they did give that one woman going down the escalator. Um, they gave her they gave her um, a braid with a scrunchie on the end of it. That's period. Yeah. What, what do you guys think the point? If, if we look at this with a, some rose, if we put some rose colored glasses on, I tried so hard, but go ahead. Okay, if we do that, let's just do that for a minute. What is the what what what's the what's the moral of this movie what are we what the, what are audiences supposed to walk away with about love the world revolves around these two people and their destiny and fuck everybody else if you love somebody it's destined to be also let's not forget that kate yeah. beckinsale was 100 percent gonna get in a cab and ruin hallie's wedding I, this is what bothers me to no end. It's like the collateral damage. It doesn't Didn't matter. matter. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it was, she was good. She was getting in a cab to go ruin that woman's wedding. People don't have to be perfect in movies. Like people don't have to be likable, likable in movies. But when it's, I think within the confines of a romantic comedy, within the trappings and the tropes, um, it, you know, the tropes require them to frame these people as attractive and agreed and a- admirable. What I want to know is how are these people less like, how are they less likable than Robert Downey Jr. and only you when that character set up Marissa Tomei with a predatory Billy Zane? You know, like I still like Robert Downey Jr. and only you more than I like John Cusack and Serendipity. Well, yeah, because imagine like, we also don't see that breakup. Like imagine the breakup of him going, listen, the reason I've looked at that book is because I've been secretly in love with a woman I knew for four hours. I actually don't give a shit about this book. All I care about is this phone number. But yet, yeah, because at least Billy Zane's character went off script, you know, like at least there's that redeeming quality for the Robert Downey Jr. And also like, and also like Robert Downey Jr. wasn't in a relationship. Um, and we also had more of a, you know, Marissa Tomei's husband was a jerk. And they had, they had strong chemistry. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was definitely chemistry, I thought, in this. Not to the extent, of, I mean, I guess Marissa Tomei and Robert Downey Jr. were like actively seeing each other in the making of Only yeah, they you, had crazy chemistry. Yeah. I thought Pete Beckinsale and John Cusack had chemistry. RDJ and Marissa Tomei definitely have more chemistry because they were also in the movie longer together because yeah. their first date was a lot better. Um, if I look that bummed out at my rehearsal, right. someone needs to call right. off my wedding too, though. Right. But with um with Kate Beckinsale and, and John Cusick, I agree that they, ha- that they have chemistry. But the thing is, like, they were, they only, uh, what's kind of funny about it is that they were only required to film together for like two or three days. Really? They're yeah. not in the same movie, basically. They're not in the same movie. And they haven't really seen... And Kate Beckinsale said in 2020, like, yeah, I haven't seen him since this movie. Wow. Yeah, so they barely... And they didn't know each other before this either. So it's... Yeah. So pretty much all the interactions between Kate Beckinsale and John Cusack are recorded in this film. I think... So that's another <laughs> thing in our remake that is a Black comedy Bader Meinhof story, they need to interact a little bit more, even if like fate keeps intervening or fucking it up or whatever. The near misses got old because I was like, okay, here comes yeah. another near miss. Like, why can't they just cross paths a little bit? Just a smidge. No, in my in my remake, at least my version of the remake, it's like there is no destiny. The world, um, the world is the the you know, the the world is a is a 
is a dark and unfeeling place. There's no destiny in this movie either. These people are assholes. <laughs> I, I don't mind. I mean, maybe it's the romantic in me. I don't mind the destiny part. Where I get off the handle is with the destiny at all costs. We got to get rid of that. It's like, okay. okay. We get rid of the... They for- I mean, when you force... I mean, and maybe like that actually would have been a smarter, kind of a smarter movie too, which kind of... I feel like actually the only you did a little bit better. Um, and like, you know, yeah. if you really want destiny, you can't be so active. It's yeah. You can't be such an active participant if you really believe in destiny. Or if you really want destiny in that storybook way, you're setting yourself up for being a yeah. mark in a way, a mark for people who are going to take advantage of that, which we learned yeah. in only you. If Destiny was real, he wouldn't have had to go to every single used bookstore all the time in New York City looking for that book because it would have just like appeared before him. But you could also argue that it did appear before him because oh, his it did, it did. fiance gives him that book. Because he's the worst person ever. And she's been like, well, I guess he really must like love in the time of cholera. He's always picking it up when we're together on our walks through the bookstores. I mean the amount of therapy I'd have to be in if someone broke off the engagement to me by saying that story. I mean, I'm still going to argue that that's just statistics and she is so fucking lucky she got rid of that guy before they signed a marriage license together. Like I said, I think a lot of these characters would be a lot easier to swallow um, and actually maybe even fun to watch if, yeah, it was like a character study black comedy. I had fun I had fun watching it. I yeah. had fun watching the ridiculousness in a way. Well, that's true. No, I, I agree with that. Just in terms of like me taking off the rose colored glasses and like oh, okay. really, really looking. Yeah, like it's it's vibes. And it's like it's yeah. I, it's I feel totally like my vibe. yeah, like my reptile brain enjoyed this. Sometimes you need a, a reptile brain movie. Yeah. I, I yeah, we just didn't need Aiden. We needed Aiden to be Aiden. Because yeah. I was like, oh, I'm into this guy if it's just Aiden. Then and he's then, like the Hallie character. If he's Aiden, yeah, I want him to get together with Natasha. I think the movie obviously is trying to get us to to go into the, you know, love is love at all costs, no matter what. And you can't control what happens. It just, it's fate. Yeah. And, and like the consequence of that argument is other people don't matter. Right. No one dot, dot, dot. So I and I'm I'm rolling with John's black comedy version. Yeah. Like who who are we casting in that then? Because it's not anybody that fits the mold of these people. Like who can play a douche really well? But like but in a, in a in a way that's kind of going to be likable too. Even <laughs> if you as you see them as you see the the movie's narrative tear them apart. I can't remember what was the guy from New Top Gun. Um, oh, Miles Teller. Queens. No, not Miles Teller. The other guy. Oh. Um, hold on. I feel like he's a, lo- a lovable douche. Oh my god, if he's listening, he's going to be so mad at us. Why? Uh, for calling him a lovable douche? I think he knows that. That's his Glenn brand. Powell. Yeah, Glenn Powell. I totally would buy him in a black comedy romance. Mm-hmm. And I feel like like the Natasha, I mean, the Hallie character. Um, my god, she's basically the same character in this because the same exact thing happens to her. I know! This poor woman! <laughs> just this poor actress just has she not me written all over although although miles teller kind of looks like john cusack he does i could see miles teller in this i mean we can cast them both if we want to make lars like more of a character 
And Glenn Powell would make a good Lars. And I feel like Miles Teller would make a good John Cusack. Um well, to Sarah. It's kind of like, are they both? Like, do you think that, do you think it would be smart for Sarah to also be creeped out by Jonathan? No. I mean, why would she be creeped out by him? Because I feel like she's the one driving this insanity. But like, what? But I mean, like, what if... I don't know, Biz. Like, I, another thing about this movie, too, is that they they kind of chickened out. They wanted it to be like a 15 to 20 year gap. But they didn't, but I guess the test audiences didn't buy. It's even sadder. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't buy that John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale were that could be that young. Um, so what, like, what if we brought back the, the larger gap and we actually had these people meet, you know, when they're in their 20s? And then by the time that they're in their forties, um, yeah. you know, she like she's matured and kind of kind of gotten over the destiny thing, and he's kind of stuck on, and he's kind of stuck in it because Ooh, he's. I love that idea, pieces. and I think it, I I love that John, and I also think that it would help. I think the age difference would really help the. Uh, I don't want to say us care more, but I feel like if I saw people that met in their twenties and then reconnected like in their late forties, early fifties. I'm mm. automatically more into this. So, yeah, I agree with that. It's sort of like same time next year vibes. Yeah. But so then we got to cast them twice. We need like people in their mid 20s and people in their mid 40s. Older. Oh my gosh. Or just oh. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like for the meetup scene in their 20s, you can just cast some up and coming people that unknowns make, make them look like it. Kind of like the guy that they cast as um, young Harrison Ford and um, age of Adelaide, age Adeline. Okay, so then we just want actors in their mid, mid to late forties. Mm-hmm. Like, like John Kate and Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have her do it. Well, they're in their fifties now. Yeah. I but mean, honestly, I feel like this calls for Hallie's favorite actor, John Krasinski. <laughs> I feel like you always want to cast this, John Krasinski. Call for John Krasinski. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I think I could see that, John Krasinski. I would see a John Krasinski, Emily Blunt. That would make me oh, happy. Oh, that's cute. I like that. That would make me really happy. Uh, I think John's boozy hot chocolate from college is way better than whatever frozen hot chocolate is out there. And I will not be having another frozen hot chocolate if I can help it. Death by serendipity chocolate. <laughs> I miss. I, I kind of want to go to serendipity. It makes me want to go too, though. You can also go to their. You can also sit at their table that they sat at, and it's called the star. It's called the star table. Wow. Because I wonder the- how many people know that. <laughs> Do is that because a lot of things have been filmed at that table, or is it because of this movie? Because of this movie. Oh God! I really wish there was a better answer than that. Well, I, but to John's point, though, like this didn't do badly. It, it This was not a I remember when this came out, I didn't see it, but I remember it didn't do badly. No, it didn't do badly. But I think there's a reason why it's like forgotten. Like Pearl Harbor didn't do badly, but that is not a good movie. Oh my God, I was obsessed with Pearl Harbor when it came out. I thought about that for like the first five minutes of this movie. I was like, God, I loved her. Yeah, I loved her in her red lipstick in her 40s outfits. All I wanted was to wear all those costumes. Oh, yeah. It was a, it actually was a beautiful movie. It was or just, just not, a, not a great script. Um, no. Yeah. Wow. 2001. Weird year for movies. I mean, I, I've talked. I always talk about this. Like 2000, 2001, like suddenly a, 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 a switch flipped. 
And that's when, like, this is when all of the franchises started to take over. And this is when movies like Rain Man and Kramer versus Kramer mm. and Schindler's List and um, The English Patient stopped being in the, in the top 10. Yes, that's very true. And, you know, I want to recognize the fact that I have just shat all over this movie, but I do kind of miss when there were generic rom-coms that, that it was it was like a dime store novel kind of thing mm-hmm. or like an airport paperback, but you could just sort of like show up to the mall on a Saturday and and pick yeah. like a really innocuous thing to watch. Like I was I was on a I was on a healthy diet of these of those movies before. Like I don't know what it was, like maybe two or three weeks before the wedding. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what it was. I was just such in the mood for these. And I was watching I was watching shit like the wedding planner. Exactly. Um, what women I, want. I, yeah i loved the wedding planner yeah it's yeah it's just like i don't know it's just like it's just maybe my reptile brain needed that comfort food in such I a stressful time totally and i think i think that's a good way to talk about this of it, it is kind of like that the generic rom-com but at that beautiful novelty and it also and then it makes the ones like sleepless in seattle that much richer yeah because they're like oh wow this genre actually really works it's It's, just hard to write it's hard to write it's very hard to write but it's a but when it works it like really sings actually yeah because there's like a there's like a shit ton of excellent horror movies in the world but there is maybe like over the last hundred years you could um you could probably pick out like 25 excellent romantic comedies Including like the golden era, I feel like, mm-hmm. and there's only twenty five. I say like, hmm? I mean, I'm thinking like all of the like Fred and Ginger movies, My Best Girl, an excellent silent rom com. Mm-hmm. You know, like I feel like I don't know, man. I'm not even a huge there's fan also, of this genre, for me, but for me, romantic comedy is also different than screwball comedy. Yeah, I I think there's. I'm gonna. I I want to be a little more generous with the rom-coms i think that i think it, i think they're probably more than 25 well that's how much i respect this genre i think because i just think it's probably the, the hardest genre to to write well i honestly yeah. do for any medium i think for plays for tv for movies it is it's hard yeah um but i do yeah there is a there is a sense of comfort though about these which i think is why our, I love that you said reptile. Our reptile brain still leans in a little bit, even when it's all over the place. It's Honestly, like, oh, I just, I just remember, <laughs> like, I think these, especially these late '90s, early 2000s rom coms, these were the only movies that made me excited about being an adult someday. Mm. Um, because not for the romance part so much as like, I guess, like, there was also like a, a lot of materialism too. They always had great jobs. They had great jobs. Young ages. Um, like when she walked in, like in this movie, when she walks into her house in San Francisco and like, and the candles are all lit up and it's like, I want to live there. Like, yeah. I, like I, I really, really want to live there. I want, I want this woman's life. Annie Lennox was the soundtrack to her life. Sign me up. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, and that's what you always had. Like, I remember thinking that and what women want. Like, I just like, I want to hang out in these buildings. I want to hang out in these rooms. Yeah. I want I want to wear these clothes. Um, all like pretty much all of Diane Lane's filmography is like that for me. I get it. I totally get it. And it's also like, oh, this is what having a job looks like. 
you go and you're with all these people that are like interesting and cool and you have a couple really good friends and you talk about life and you never do any work <laughs> you never do any work you write on your whiteboard in your office <laughs> yeah like work is just like you know like you just sit at your desk with your apple computer and I felt like, the emails and you write things down sometimes and you chew on your pen <laughs> i was so obsessed i was so obsessed with whiteboards as a kid that my parents had to get me one for christmas once because i was just obsessed with writing with the dry erase markers i got oh, in trouble i, I like tell the dry erase markers smell and i got in trouble for smelling them but i oh, was yeah. like, that's not to get high I just like that's always sense. concerning but i liked it too <laughs> and he turned out totally fine. He turned out fine. So, oh my God, uh, you mean like a rubber cement? I don't think I ever smelled that. Please don't let your children sniff things. Okay, yeah, you know, like my parent, my parents. But I love me. the smell of dry erase markers, and I love the smell of gas. Oh God, oh my God. I hate this. But I, again, I turned out fine. Gasoline, <laughs> I'm fine. I love. I mean, I, I love. I love bourbon and whiskey nowadays, and I always tell people like I people always expect me to have like sophisticated opinions about like what's good. And I always say like, I don't know, like all the, all the stuff that smells like permanent marker is like really good. <laughs> it does kind of smell totally. like shoe polish. When you said bourbon and whiskey, I was like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any final thoughts on serendipity? I think we can agree that John Cusack was in his prime looks wise. I'm going to objectify him one more time. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like this period through like runaway jury or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. He's doing yeah. good. This is prime. <laughs> well, we wish you well, John. And you're so you hot, really I'm well, sure. Man. I just we haven't seen you. you lately. 